This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 61 of World to Win. It's really exciting to be here because uh, we are going to talk today about something that is very close to my heart, and that is Britain. We've seen so many things happen recently uh, in basically every field that is possibly imaginable in Britain. So uh, I'm really looking forward to kind of discussing it and maybe sharing with the international a little bit of what we've been doing here in Britain. Before we start though, I do want to say that Toya's not going to be here. Unfortunately, she's uh, not feeling well. So please leave comments uh, to tell her to feel uh, much, much better. But now we can uh, move on and talk a little bit about Britain. And uh, of course, it would be great if you have anything to add to it to put in the comments as well. And of course, like and share uh, our account. So we are going to have two guests here from the England, Wales and Scotland section of the International Socialist Alternative. We've got Claire. How are you doing, Claire? I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you, Yara? I'm great. Have you been doing anything interesting recently, reading anything uh, interesting? Well, I've been trying to help uh, draft some of our documents for the uh, Congress we're going to be having in March in England and Wales. So I've been trying to get to grips and get my head around what the perspectives are for Britain. So hopefully that's going to be helpful for tonight's discussion. I'm really, really keen to hear a sneak peek of that before I get to read the document. So uh, looking forward to that. And we also have Tom here. Um, how are you doing, Tom? Have you been reading anything interesting? Hi, Yara. Um, let me think. What have I been, what have I been reading? Um, yeah, I mean, I've been reading uh, some things about uh, chartism currently, the kind of revolutionary history of uh, the working class in Britain, you know, the, the fight for the right to vote and so on, uh, for an upcoming article in the next issue of our section's uh, monthly paper. So, yeah, very interesting. That's really interesting, and I'm sure we'll be sharing this article far and wide, so keep your eyes peeled for that if you're uh, interested in uh, kind of uh, revolutionary history. But before we get on to maybe the parts that are to do with the elections, if I'm going to give a little uh, sneak peek of what we're going to talk about, I do want to talk about something that's been in the news for the past few years massively. Uh, And we just in the last couple of weeks had a major change in situation, and that is Prince Andrew, who, uh, if anyone who's watching us doesn't know, he is... Uh, the son of uh, the current uh, monarch, the Queen, uh, and he has been uh, involved in quite a big scandal that I'm sure everyone around the world knows about, uh, which is the um, uh, sexual uh, uh, harassment and rape uh, 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 that had to do with uh, Epstein. So uh, in the last week, we had the Queen actually strip him of all of his titles, including his military titles, which is unprecedented. So I wanted to ask you, Claire, first of all, why is this so unprecedented and what actually happened there to make that happen? Yeah, well, I think that first of all, it's worth saying that there's probably nothing more disgusting to the vast majority of working class people than the way in which this whole case has been revealed uh, you know, from the start as essentially a, a group of extremely rich, ultra-rich people, mostly men, but obviously we know because of the Ghislaine Maxwell case, some women involved as well, in a, almost an open secret of sex trafficking and abuse of 
young women and girls. And this has gone on unpunished for a whole period of time. So what has you know, changed in the last week is that Prince Andrew, who was hoping, I think, that he would be able to continue to essentially, and I should say, uh, just in case we uh, are vulnerable to being sued, um, that Prince Andrew denies these allegations very strongly, as they keep telling us on every uh, news channel whenever this story comes on. But I think that he thought that based on the position he's got in society, one of immense privilege, immense wealth, um, proximity to power of every kind, that somehow, the you know, this just wouldn't um, end up coming to court, basically. And I think that uh, the fact that the judge in America has made this ruling, which threw out all of uh, Prince Andrew's attempts to prevent Virginia Giuffre from bringing a civil case has you know, meant that it's clear now that Prince Andrew is not going to simply be able to push this under the carpet. This is going to come out, more and more information is going to come out about what he was involved in, and it's going to be a scandal which runs and runs for the royal family. And I guess, you know, one of the questions that people will be asking is, is this just about one rotten apple? Is this just about one bad egg? And I guess I think I think that's a really really good question, especially because that institution uh, is you know a very old fashioned institution, and I think recently it's not just the allegations with Prince Andrew. We've also heard everywhere in the world um, uh, uh, Prince Harry also talking about racism within the family. So it kind of feels like there's been this major shift of how the royal family is being treated in Britain. And just for the sake of uh, kind of the uh, listeners from around the world, because I know that before I moved here, I did not realize that either. I think that outside of Britain or maybe outside of places that have still, that still have monarchies, it kind of sounds like a quirky little idea, you know, that, oh, they have a queen, it's so cute. But there's actually, traditionally, has been quite a uh, very controversial subject um, that people are very emotional about, um, uh, about the monarchy. So seeing these, all of these things that coming both from within the royal family, but also from outside the royal family, the kind of chipping away at their authority is, I think, really interesting to see as kind of socialist fighters. Obviously, we do not support uh, the monarchy in any way. Um, so I-, I wanted to ask, why why do you think this is happening right now? Like, why? Because I I don't know if you agree, but I don't think that a few years ago, even with the same scenario, uh, Prince Andrew would necessarily have been stripped of his title. So what happened to get it to that point? Well, I guess in a way, I just want to make a comment first of all before I answer that on um, sort of the first part of what you were saying, because I think that for, for Marxists, we have an understanding of where sexism, racism and different forms of oppression come from. And particularly with sexism, we identify the way in which society moved to being one in which people were interested in passing on private property from one generation to the next and therefore being um, concerned with the question of you know female um, well, controlling attempting to control women's sexuality 
and to do that often violently in order to make sure that paternity could be assured and that property could be passed on in the correct way. You know, in a way that the royal family is like the epitome of that kind of system because it's all about passing on positions of power and wealth from one generation to the next in that kind of, um, you know, in that kind of way. And so, you know, when people were going on the television and saying, well, you know, this is terrible. Prince Andrew's obviously not such a great guy, but isn't the Queen wonderful? And surely we, should, we don't want to lose this brilliant institution. Actually, it's the institution which has created Prince Andrew. It's not the other way around. And he is a product of an institution which is, of course, institution, you know, institutionally, intrinsically misogynist, intrinsically racist, and of course has been responsible for um, multitudes of crimes throughout the centuries against uh, particularly, obviously, those um, parts of the world which were colonised by Britain, um, stood over the slave trade, etc. So, you know, the idea that he's one bad apple is just nonsense. But on the second part of your question, it's like, you know, obviously that sort of thing's been true since forever. So why is this suddenly now not being just passed over in the way it might have been previously? And I think that the answer to that is that we've seen over the last decade or so a new revolt of particularly young women um, against sexism and especially against violence against women. And we've seen huge protest movements which have stretched across the globe um, in all different kinds of in all different kinds of political contexts, whether it's uh, the Ni Una Menos movement we saw in Latin America, whether it's the women's marches that emerged after Trump's election, whether it's the Me Too movement, which was particularly an online phenomenon, which has has now, like I say, spilled out onto the streets in a whole number of cases, and of course we're even seeing now, absolutely tragically, this week there was the femicide which took place or last week femicide in Ireland of Ashlyn Murphy a young woman and again you know something which might have been reported in the news everyone would have felt terribly sad about it but maybe wouldn't have sparked that kind of outpouring not just of grief but also anger and demand for change that reflects that things have changed I think within our society and people are not prepared to put up with it anymore uh, young people especially uh, are demanding change. Women are demanding change. Working class people are demanding change. And as a result, when this kind of thing starts to come out, when you start to see, um, you know, when people saw that interview by Prince Andrew on Newsnight, it was clear to me that, you know, that was not going to be the end of it. Just for, for those of us who haven't seen the interview, um, he gave, I think, probably the most ridiculous comebacks that I've ever heard to anything. But I think this, like the point that you're making about how these movements in the last few years have changed the consciousness. It's kind of like the, his, what he was saying is that he couldn't have possibly been sweating on a dance floor, which is what uh, one of his accusers said. Um, because he can't sweat because of a medical condition. Or it was saying that he was in a pizza restaurant while uh, uh, some of uh, the accusations were happening. Um, and it's, it's just the kind of thing that 
I I think definitely like to anyone who knows anything about what's happening in society right now, they would know that it wouldn't pass. But I think Prince Andrew, like you said, is part of this institution that for centuries has seen itself as separate from ordinary people. And it's seen itself as kind of not just separate, but also better. And like they can get away with anything. And I think that that's not just monarchies around the world. I mean, I think just the story that with Epstein shows that it's all about the power that you have in society. And that power is often uh, uh, financial power. It's often having these means of production. It's having uh, the resources to have authority and to have power over uh, people and especially over women. Um, But I think it's so entrenched in the royal family uh, that Prince Andrew didn't even think that he needed to give better excuses than these very ridiculous and poor excuses that he did. So if we've had this change and if Oh, we can all point at this and say, no, this is bad. And even the queen is forced to strip him of his titles, which is a very rare and unusual thing for the royal family to do. Does this mean that the royal family is done, that we're going to have uh, the royal jubilee uh, uh, this, uh, 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 this year and that's it? We're saying goodbye to the monarchy? Well, um, I don't think it's really as simple as that, unfortunately. I mean, first of all, one Prince Andrew himself. I think that we have to say that him being stripped of his titles is not in any way justice for the victims of the Epstein abuse or, you know, the alleged abuse committed by Prince Andrew himself. And, you know, the vast majority of us obviously don't have HRH in front of our names. That's not some sort of punishment, really. You know, that's (laughs) that's frankly just putting them on a par with everybody else. The reality is that if he has committed abuse of this kind, then, you know, it isn't justice just for him to, you know, maybe have to pay some money over to one of his alleged victims. So I I don't think that we should hold that up as the end point that we're fighting for. I think, you know, real justice for victims of sexual abuse everywhere requires systemic change, fundamental change. And one of the things that, you know, that is part of that systemic and fundamental change is removing from power these unaccountable institutions. So socialists are Republicans in that sense. We don't support unelected, unaccountable individuals being given all the power that, you know, the Queen and her descendants have um, apportions to them which includes for example you know lots of things which are talked about as being technical powers and it's true that the monarch doesn't generally use these uh, but for example the power to dissolve parliament the power to command the standing army and so on all of which could potentially be used if uh, you know if the ruling class in Britain felt threatened by a mass movement of working class people, or perhaps by a left government, uh, you know, for example, if we'd seen Corbyn brought to power, you, you couldn't rule out that some of those powers might have been brought into play to try and frustrate and to prevent him from carrying out pro-working class policies. So I don't think that we have a, you know, benign view of the monarchy. Um, and I do think that the mood on... Uh, you know, the question of the monarchy is changing within British society. I think that there was, you know, a period in which, because particularly of 
the Queen and the way in which she has, at least in terms of the public perception, perception presented herself. It's not actually true if you look at what she's done. We know that she's interfered much more than has been widely discussed in politics that came out recently. But you know, she's there's a public there's been a public perception that she's sort of above uh, politics. But I do think that people are starting to see and the mass of working class people are, you know, aware that that isn't exactly how it is. And that's true because of Prince Andrew. It's also true because the next person who's in line for the throne is Prince Charles, who's got a long history of airing his political views on just about every question you can think of. Um, And often they're very reactionary political views. And I do think that there will be a sense that actually this is completely out of date and we need to, you know, change the way that things are done. And I think that that will not be separated from the the general mood that exists within British society and beyond Britain, obviously, of deep disillusionment with all of the institutions which underpin the failing capitalist system. And so it won't be, you know, this won't be a separate question to the question of how do we get a government which will implement policies which benefit working class people, which will deal with the cost of living crisis people are facing, which will do something about the minimum wage having, you know, risen far behind the cost of living for years on end. You know, all of these different questions which are pertinent to working class people are going to be linked up. And of course, the monarchy and the role that it plays is, is going to be in the spotlight, just like all of the rest of these rotten institutions. I think that's that's so true. And, you know, for me personally, on a personal level, this episode is very timely because I actually got naturalised last week uh, on the day that uh, all, everything happened with Prince Andrew. And I remember thinking to myself just how old, like old fashioned and not com- completely out of touch with the consciousness right now, even the naturalization ceremony was whether you have a huge portrait of the queen and you need to pledge allegiance to her, all of her heirs and all of her successors. And it's kind of like, you're, you're, you're kind of getting to a point where you're thinking, why am I pledging allegiance to this person who was not elected in a time where we're all talking about how important democracy is. And when we're seeing these institutions fall one after the other, but the point that you made at the end that I think it really leads us well into the next point because it's not just those unelected officials that uh, have been getting kind of like heat from working class people in Britain, but also elected officials. We had a huge uh, kind of scandal after Boris Johnson was found to host a uh, a party uh, during lockdown, while everyone was only allowed to meet with one person, you had a hundred people invited to the gardens uh, of uh, uh, 10 Downing Street, which is uh, where the Prime Minister lives. So I was wondering, Tom, can you tell us a little bit about what happened and why uh, it became such a scandal? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, th- these revelations are really just a total... Uh, bombshell uh, for Boris Johnson on so many levels. You know, when he was first elected, um, the image that Johnson and the Tories tried to send out was, 
oh, we have a nation that's totally united uh, behind this guy, behind this prime minister. Uh, but of course, you know, that's really, it's really fallen down like a house of cards in many, in many ways over the last, uh, over the last week or so. Um, first of all, you know, just before, um, well, around the Christmas period, uh, there were revelations that last year, uh, officials at number 10, like you were saying, the residents of, uh, of Boris Johnson, were staging Christmas parties and they were essentially um, joking amongst one another about it, essentially, you know, laughing at the millions of, uh, of working class people who, you know, abided by the lockdown restrictions. Uh, but then it turned out that this wasn't a question of, uh, a party. It was a question of parties, multiple parties, multiple events. Um, Johnson was revealed to have hosted uh, quizzes, you know, that were in restrict, you know, that were in um, violation of uh, of the government's own lockdown restrictions. And then, with this revelation of the hundred members of staff uh, being invited uh, to the Garden of Number Ten, is really kind of, um, in many ways, the kind of straw that's broken uh, the camel's back. Um, you know, because when this uh, party took place, uh, you know, dozens of people attending this party, including Johnson himself, as much as he essentially tried to lie about it and cover it up to begin with, this was when it was illegal for meetings of more than one household to actually uh, to actually meet. Um, and I think really what uh, has really struck the worst chord. Um, you know, with with working class people uh, in this country, is uh, not just the, the the restriction and the and the uh, and, and the breaking of those restrictions, but the just complete dishonesty um, on show from the Tories at this particular point. I mean, Johnson initially thought, oh well, I can just sort of like hide away, and eventually people will stop talking about it, people will stop um, thinking about this, and that's not taking place. So the result has been going from one minute saying oh yes, I attended the party and I'm really sorry, but I thought it was, I implicitly thought that it was a work event, uh, which is, I mean, it's really been kind of, it's become a laughing stock, uh, really in many ways, because, you know, who in their mind would actually believe that drinks in the garden of number 10 Downing Street would be classed as a work event, unless they're just like, you know, drinking in the garden nonstop and that is what they count as work. Um, you know, I wouldn't be too surprised uh, about that. Um but then he went on to later say, oh, well, I wasn't aware that it would be in restrictions of the rules, uh, in violation of the uh, of the restrictions, um, you know, and I don't think I really need to spell out why that hasn't really cut it uh, to, to, you know, majority opinion. He, his government made the restrictions uh, to begin with. Um, so if it, And his so minister it, of health was there. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And that just shows the, you know, total hypocrisy um, on show. Um, and I think, like... In terms of the question of why this has struck such a negative chord uh, among so many people, in some ways, it's quite similar to what Claire was talking about in the sense of, uh, in the case of Prince Andrew, obviously, you know, a culture of horrendous abuse, of misogyny, um, of sexism, of abuses of power and privilege uh, within the ruling class, within ruling class circles. And in many ways, this is kind of similarly um, a class question because, you know, working class people across the country were being blamed in many cases for the spread of the virus. You know, workplaces were being kept open uh, and essentially acting like COVID hotspots, um, you know, purely for the sake of maintaining profits. Um, students who were, you know, hosting parties in, uh, in their accommodation were being uh, fined, facing police repression and stuff like that. While at the same time, there's just a total uh, entitlement on show from the uh, ruling class. 
So it's really kind of fed into what I think is a real mood uh, within society now, that there's almost like one uh, law for the majority in society, the working majority, the working class majority, and then the politicians that represent, you know, the interests of big business, uh, the billionaires who are obviously very closely linked in with them can essentially flout the rules. You know, they're, they're, the the law doesn't apply to them and the uh, the actions of the state um, don't apply to them. So, you know, that that's had quite a deep impact, uh, I think, and probably an unchangeable impact on the way that the, the majority actually views Johnson as an individual, but also in some cases... Um, the Tory party as a whole, the government as a whole. Um, in many ways, it's kind of polarised society along class lines. Uh, and I don't think that's going to very quickly uh, disappear anytime soon. I think that's really true. And, you know, I think we've seen... The, the, the fact is that this is not the first, like you said, this is not the first kind of Tory scandal that we've been seeing. And even the Christmas one is not the first one that we've been seeing. And I think... We can see that the numbers uh, in the UK of like the way that this pandemic was handled are horrendous and working class people are sick of being told to stay at home while they see that this is not the same rule that they have uh, there in uh, Downing Street. So I think it's it's really true. But I I wanted to also ask you, because we are seeing now that there's a lot of kind of um, backlash against uh, Boris Johnson. And there's even talk about uh, a vote of no, no a vote of no confidence against him. Uh, so I was wondering, what do you think is going to happen with that? And if he's voted out, does that mean that um, there's going to be a better person uh, to handle this pandemic and to kind of uh, lead for working class people? Yeah, well, I mean, there's already a lot of reports, you know, in the press and you know, leaking on social media and so on that. Tory MPs have essentially formed, you know, quite a disorderly queue um, to try and do what they can to unseat Johnson. Um, I mean, the the attitude that they'll definitely be holding at this stage is, well, we'd rather throw this kind of useless captain overboard um, so we can steer our ship um, a bit more effectively. So as a result, you know, there are are rumours of different amounts um, of no confidence uh, applications being put forward by Tory MPs. There need to be 54 uh, members of parliament rep- uh, in the Tory party saying we want to get rid of this guy for an actual vote of no confidence uh, to take place. Um, and I mean, in in a way, I think it's all a bit up in the air. There are rumours that there's going to be a vote of no confidence taking place um, next week. Um, but yeah, I mean, on, on the question about, you know, is there going to be a viable alternative uh, for, for the working class being put on show, you know, instead of Johnson? Um I mean, of course, in many ways, it goes without saying that as an international socialist organisation, we're not going to take sides necessarily in the factional battles uh, within the Tory party. You know, they're all um, of of the same guilty class um, that has created such a terrible situation, you know, for the working class um, in Britain uh, and around the world. Uh, But at the same time, I mean, there's clearly not one single clear contender um, to replace Johnson. You know, Johnson had, when when he was replacing his predecessor, um, Theresa May, he'd clearly done the long game. He'd prepared himself for years in advance. But this, um, but this crisis that's engulfed the Tories, it's happened at such a quick speed. It's been such a such a rapid turnaround and such an unexpected turnaround from their own their own point of view that they don't actually have someone immediately that can provide an alternative. All we can say very 
very, very safely is, you know, any successor um, isn't going to be um, something better um, from the point of view of the working class, you know, quite the alter- uh, quite the alternative. And of course, it's going to be about building um, a socialist movement that can provide, you know, a, a real alternative to fight for system change uh, in a socialist direction. That's clearly not going to be on show from any, uh, from any wing of the Tory party. Also, unfortunately, not on show from the leadership of the Labour Party. So it ultimately it's up for up to socialists to organise in uh, a resistance, um, you know, at workplace level uh, and, on, and on the streets. I think the point that you just ended on there is uh, uh, something that I wanted to say to kind of lead us to maybe the main part of the discussion today. Um, because as you said, we, we can talk a lot about, you know, the monarchy and how terrible they are and the Tories and how terrible they are. But Britain compared to other countries, has a party that maybe traditionally is seen as a working class party, and that's Labour. Um, But we haven't really seen any sort of, um, any any, any sort of talk from Keir Starmer, who's leading the Labour Party, against uh, all of these things that the Tories have done. It's kind of all talk about moderation, about being pro-business, about, you know, uh, having national unity at these difficult, unprecedented times. Uh, so I was wondering uh, what you can tell us about kind of the Labour Party and its position in this uh, kind of uh, kind of fight within the Tories. Are they going to put a viable candidate to actually oppose the Tories in the next election? Well, I mean... Currently, if you look at the polls, if you look at the mood uh, within society, um, at this particular point, um, Labour is currently um, gathering a, uh, you know, a, a, a what's the word, um, you know, at the highest share of the votes um, at this current point, and that obviously reflects uh, a lot about the the currently dire situation uh, of the Tories and of Johnson. And I think we have to be clear that you know this is a matter not of Labour. Uh, really going on the advance and a real kind of mass mood of, oh, yeah, we really want uh, Keir Starmer to be prime minister, but a collapse um, of Johnson's uh, kind of mandate um, to govern. Um, And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that even if Starmer has been able to capitalise a little bit, Keir Starmer has been able to capitalise a little bit on Johnson's crisis, um, you know, he is not putting forward a programme, putting forward an approach uh, that can really appeal uh, to the class interests um, of working class people. Um, you know, we, we've often commented in the past um, in in, uh, in socialist alternative in England, Wales, and Scotland that you know, obviously, with with the Labour Party uh, in a past period. Um, there was a real opportunity um, for the left. There was a real opportunity for socialists um, when the uh, when the movement around Jeremy Corbyn um, came into existence. Uh, because you know, for all the um, you know, for all the flaws that were there, what it represented was um, you know real opportunities for anti-austerity kind of policies, uh, pro-working class policies, left policies um, to gain you know a mass platform. And really, what Starmer represented was the opposite class interest. It was the the old kind of Blairite um, way of operating. So really, you know, what we've seen over the last uh, period, and I think, you know, we'd have to have a whole other uh, discussion to go into, you know, why this has taken place. Um, it was the failure of Corbyn to stand up um, to, to that kind of Blairite, you know, pro-Tony Blair style faction um, that has resulted in the leadership of Starmer. And yeah, like you say, um, Yara, um, Starmer's whole 
way of operating is to say to the ruling class, I'm going to be a, pair, a safe pair of hands for you. You know, when um, the shadow chancellor, the kind of um, second in command almost in many ways, uh, Rachel Reeves sat down with the uh, the Financial Times, um, you know, earlier this week, kind of the, um, the sort of in-house publication for the ruling class. When she was asked, is Labour a party of the working class? She said, oh, well, we're pro-worker, but we're also really pro-business and kind of emphasised uh, this side of it. And I think that's a good... Um, angle uh, to come at it from. At the same time, you know, you have uh, people like West Streeting, the uh, the Shadow Health Minister, saying, "Oh well, we can solve the crisis in in the health service, a very deep crisis, by involving private companies, for example." You know, uh, which is you know, obviously from from our point of view and the point of view of any right thinking uh, person, it is the root of the problem. You know, the the, the capitalist uh, system finding an inroad. Uh, into the into the health service, and while Starmer is basically allowing uh, quite literal Tory MPs, there was a Tory MP that um, defected from the Tories and joined Labour uh, nominally um, just the other day. While that's happening, Corbyn has still been deprived um, of his right to sit as a Labour MP uh, under a you know a false um, allegation uh, of anti-Semitism. Um, so you know, on that basis, I think we can we're going to have to more and more see that Labour, as much as it's gained in the polls and so on because of the crisis of the Tories, um, doesn't represent a, a party that the working class can look at, uh, look towards to to provide a lead uh, for its struggles over the next period. Uh, as much as we'd like to say that that was the case, um, that it's unfortunately not the case at this uh, this point in time. I think what you're saying about how one of the main problems that Corbyn had in Labour is they didn't stand up to these uh, kind of new Labour uh, Blairites who kind of took the party away from working class politics and into kind of business politics, pretending like you can do both. Um, While he didn't stand up to them, they are definitely standing up to him and they're definitely standing up to the left uh, of the party. And that actually led uh, to quite interesting news, I think, especially for us as socialists in Britain in the past uh, week or so. And that is that Corbyn, who was one of these leaders that won over so uh, many workers and especially young people into the Labour Party again after this really bleak period of new Labour, uh, uh, like the anti-workerist new Labour, uh, he was kicked out of the party, uh, like you said, because of these allegations. Um, and now he is talking about starting a new party. So I think this is really interesting. And I think also uh, we always say that we want political representation for the working class. And maybe this is a step forward. So I'm really interested to hear what you two have to say about that. So can you please, first of all, explain who Corbyn is and what he kind of uh, what kind of like the history of who he is and why we are at this stage where he's starting a new party instead of going with one of the traditional parties? Uh, I think that for people perhaps watching internationally who aren't fully up to speed with Jeremy Corbyn, he was a Labour MP for many, many years. I can't remember the exact number of years um, and has been a sort of left MP, a champion of various causes, particularly uh, anti-imperialist struggles and so on. And he was a backbench MP for many, many years under Blair, under Brown. 
and was a serial rebel in Parliament, so frequently voted against the whip, whether it was voting against the Iraq war, voting against various different Blairite policies and so on. So he was kind of an outsider within the Labour Party. But he was never somebody who supported the attempts that were being made or the the calls that were being made to set up a, a new party to represent working class people. So in a sense, he was kind of imprisoned for all of those years of new Labour inside um, a party which, you know, really didn't have very much room for him. But in a way, by some sort of by by sort of a, a freak coincidence, the kinds of which, you know, get thrown up sometimes in politics because of a change to the rules, which was made by the right wing Labour leader Ed Miliband. Actually, he made these changes with the aim of preventing the left from ever getting a foothold. Paradoxically, the way that uh, he made those changes, which allowed basically anybody, you didn't have to be a member of the Labour Party, anybody in society could sign up for £3 and vote for somebody to be the leader of Labour. Jeremy Corbyn got himself onto the ballot as the kind of routine, token left candidate who was expected to fall off the bottom and get a, you know an abysmal vote based on a right wing you know membership leadership of the Labour Party because he put forward some very basic things that he wanted to end austerity that he wanted to support the struggles of working class people that he wanted free education you know some of those basic demands which the vast majority of working class people are united around and polls, you know, indicate that, but which no politician was saying, no politician was saying they would nationalise the utilities, nationalise, um, you know, renationalise privatised services like the post office and so on. Because he put those things forward and he did so with a national platform that came from having stood uh, to be the leader of the Labour Party, he ignited a spark and... He drew tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, actually, behind him in what had the potential to be the kind of mass movement which could have transformed Labour into a party which was for working class people. So, you know, he was a figure who inspired huge numbers of people because he offers an alternative. Unfortunately, where things kind of came unstuck was that he was not really prepared to go the full way and especially actually those people who were around him who declared themselves essentially the leaders of the Corbyn movement uh, without ever having been elected. So people like John Landsman, for example, who set up Momentum but you know, set it up on a very undemocratic basis. Corbyn and particularly, like I say, those people around him, they weren't prepared for the fight that they needed to have with the old guards, the Blairites, the the right within Labour, who were much more fearful, actually, of someone like Jeremy Corbyn coming to power than they were of Boris Johnson or Theresa May. They would rather see, the truth is, a, a, a right-wing Tory government in power than they would somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, who has the potential to inspire working-class people to demand more real socialist change which would threaten the interests of the rich one percent who ultimately 
uh, those politicians are there to represent, you know, they are there to represent the interests of big business and the rich. Uh, and their only real difference with the Tories is, you know, over who will be the best people to manage capitalism, not not anything really fundamental or ideological. So that's that's who he is, I'd say. I think I think that's a really good and concise explanation. And I think that we all also really talked about kind of the situation that Labour is in right now. And obviously Corbyn was kicked out, but um, it also makes sense why he wouldn't be uh, working within a party that uh, did everything in its power not to have him uh, become uh, the leader of the party in the first place. And when that failed, did everything to kick him out uh, after. So... Now he's talking about starting a new workers' party, which I think could be a really interesting and exciting prospect. So why do we think that that's uh, happened right now? And what is needed for this party to actually go where it needs to go? Yeah. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first important thing to kind of uh, stress here um, is that the talk of a new party coming about hasn't necessarily been from Corbyn himself. Uh, there have been, you know, articles in the press that have kind of hinted at it. Uh, there's rumours that people within Corbyn's inner circle, you know, have kind of warmed to the idea um, of him moving in that direction. So, you know, we, we shouldn't rule it out, but it, it, it's definitely not yet a case that Corbyn has kind of come out and outright said, um, I'm going to set up um, a new party. I mean, the the, the reason why this has, um, you know, come about in the first place is because essentially, like, you know, like has been said, Corbyn's essentially been, you know, hounded out of the Labour Party and deprived of, um, you know, his right to sit as a uh, as a Labour MP. He currently sits as an independent MP um, for his constituency, which he's, you know, been MP of since the, uh, since the 1980s. Um, and essentially what everybody knows, including Corbyn, I'm sure he will be very aware of this, is Starmer's not going to stand aside. He's not going to fail to stand um, a Labour candidate against Corbyn. Um, It's really, you know, it's really what Starmer could have hoped for the most, a chance to try and edge Corbyn out of his own constituency um, and then try and kind of almost lop the head off off a a potential, um, you know, new movement of the left um, to re-emerge. So the, the, the question of a potential new party comes out of that. You know, does Corbyn um, stand as an independent or does he launch some sort of political organisation uh, that can take things uh, in that direction? Um, after Corbyn was, uh, you know, essentially removed from any kind of influence uh, within the Labour Party, he did take a step towards setting up something that he called the uh, the Peace and Justice Project and... You know, it less. It's less of a political party, more of a um, a kind of like global um, social justice, bit of an NGO type organization. Um, you know, and of course, you know, we recognise that that is a step forward in the sense of something being organised. Um, you know, to push for the policies that Corbyn was first elected on. But I think the the key thing that we have to point out now is, you know, Corbyn should have already launched a new party. 
um, I think is really what we kind of have to say. Uh, because there is a mood uh, within society for something like that. You know, um, about half a million people joined the Labour Party when Corbyn was first elected. Uh, and those people, they, they've, not, they've not disappeared. They've not vanished. Um, there is still a mood uh, for the kind of policies that the Corbyn movement uh, was, actually, um, was actually standing for. And of course, within Corbyn's own constituency, there will be uh, very much a mood of, well, if Corbyn's going to organise something, organise a grassroots campaign, um, you know, for, for, for re-election, a lot of people would want to come out um, and campaign for him. I think the key point, though, is that there will be a certain mood maybe uh, among some people of, oh, well, you've split the anti-Tory vote, you know, the, the vote um, against the Tories is going to be split and so on. Uh, and of course, you know, we understand why people might feel that way. But I think the key point is that um, elections um, across the country wouldn't even necessarily be the main priority. The main priority, I think, would be to use um, a new party as an avenue to, to, to gather together all of these different strands um, of working class struggle and of, uh, and of protest movements around the country that have taken place um, over the last couple of years. You know, we've seen some very important strikes taking place um, across the uh, across the UK um, in recent months. You know, more more than a uh, more than a, a slight reflection of the uh, of the so called you know like strike tober um, taking place uh, in the US. But there have also obviously been mass protests taking place. Um, you know. Um, you know, against uh, the capitalist-driven climate crisis um, at COP26. There have been protests um, against uh, anti-democratic uh, restrictions on the right to protest, the, the Kill the Bill protests, which they're called, which Socialist Alternative have been very active uh, in standing alongside in solidarity with and talking about the next step for. If a party is going to come about that can really represent the interests of these movements and of working people generally, um, it's going to have to be based on that. It can't just be based around one seat um, in London, as much as obviously Corbyn's seat is going to be important um, going forward. Um, yeah, don't know if there's anything left out there. Maybe Claire can <laughs> touch on something else. Yeah, and I think what you said about splitting the vote, I think that's something that we keep hearing every time there's any attempt to get any uh, electoral uh, success for working class people. Um, so I was wondering, Claire, what, what do you think about it? Do you, because I think Tom gave really, really good points about splitting the vote. But at the same time, we are saying that the Labour Party isn't really representing us. So um, what, 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 what would you say to people who are talking about a new party splitting the vote? Well, I agree with what Tom said about the main priority of any new party should not first and foremost be we need to get all of these new MPs elected necessarily, the first uh, priority right now should be we need a mass movement on the streets to drive out this Tory government. And then, of course, the question of an electoral alternative, you know, flows out of that. And of course, that would involve, you know, fighting to win seats, especially first and foremost, keeping Corbyn seats. But I do think it would potentially uh, need to go beyond that. And, you know, People say, well, there's a danger of, of splitting the vote against the Tories. Look at this guy, Christian Wakeford, who has been brought into the Labour Party. Starmer's opened his arms and said, welcome home, you know, come on uh, on board with Labour. Meanwhile, obviously, Corbyn has been chucked out by Starmer. Christian Wakeford, a Tory through and through, he voted to remove the £20 a week universal credit uplift. So just to explain for anyone who doesn't know what universal credit is, it's basically 
the main welfare benefit which is available in the UK and it's paid for um, paid to people both who are unemployed and people who are working but whose wages aren't enough for them to survive on and £20 a week was added to universal credit during coronavirus in order to just you know hopefully make uh, people well in order to try and stave off the, the crisis that was developing uh, the Tories added £20 a week a pittance actually nothing like what's necessary but they then voted to take it away again and cut that lifeline off for millions of working class people and this guy Christian Wakeford he's one of the people who voted for it he's one of the people who voted to uh, deny children who were going hungry during the school holidays again during the, the height of the coronavirus crisis to deny them 15 pounds a week for a free a free lunch uh, which is, uh, you know, that that's the kind of guy this is. And it's come out today that he's even been uh, literally talking, uh, you know, using the C words when describing Labour and that kind of thing in WhatsApp uh, chats. This guy does not belong in Labour. But the fact that uh, Starmer thinks that he does tells you everything you need to know about the kind of Labour Party he is building. And, you know, Who's splitting the vote in that constituency? The people of uh, Bury uh, North, if they get that guy as the Labour candidate uh, the next election, they don't have uh, anybody to vote for who isn't a Tory, do they? And that's unfortunately not just the case in that place, because the fact that, that, that Starmer welcomes him indicates that there is a coming together politically of uh, the likes of uh, the, the Blairite right and, and large parts of what is the Tory party in reality there's there's very little between them and you're not splitting the vote you're giving people the option to vote for somebody who stands on the side of Labour uh, in the traditional sense by which I mean stands on the side of working people against the billionaire class and that's what people need so yeah I mean of course that doesn't mean that a, a new party would necessarily um, contest every single seat. There's at the moment still some good left MPs in Labour. I would say if Jeremy Corbyn were to boldly set up a new party, then those people would, you know, need to and should come over to it. If some of them didn't, of course you wouldn't in a sectarian way say, you know, we stand against every single Labour MP. That would be silly. But I think that, um, you know, that the real task is to build the kind of party which is present in the struggles of working class people and which can begin to offer that alternative. And I, th I think that's that's really kind of like the highlight of it. I think both you and Tom repeated this, that this party is not only not just about Corbyn's seat in Parliament, like his individual seat, but it's also not exclusively about winning an election it's being kind of like a political voice for these working class movements that we've seen all around and i think that it's particularly kind of important to remind people that corbyn's success in the labor party was largely due to the fact that he was 
in these movements. He was present in them and he built uh, support around him with the rallies, with grassroots movements. Uh, and I think also his failures are due to the fact that he didn't do enough of it at, at a lot of points of his, uh, uh, his place as a leader. But I think this was a really, really interesting discussion. And I want to thank both uh, Tom and Claire for being with us. And I'm sure that Everyone listening to it is now uh, is now knows so much more about Britain, and I particularly think that it's really interesting in the context of all of these uh, kind of representatives that we're seeing around the world, like Sanders and uh, like AOC in the US, of kind of maybe more to the left representatives uh, in parliamentary, um, uh, like you know, uh, like traditional parties. Uh, and maybe seeing what the way forward should be about and kind of how to create this voice for working class people that obviously should not only exist in our parliament or in government. So thank you so much for being here and hopefully see you soon. Wow, that was uh, so interesting. And I hope that everyone from outside of Britain found this uh, uh, as interesting as I did as well. Um, but now we're going to move to uh, our favorite part of every Well to Win episode, which is the shout out of the week. And this week we're actually talking uh, about something that was mentioned uh, at the beginning of this episode. And that's the horrific uh, uh, murder of Ashley Murphy uh, in Ireland. And I think that we're all sick of hearing of femicide. Uh, I think around the world in the past, obviously forever, but especially in the past few years, uh, uh, it's become not just a huge phenomenon that is important for everyone to uh, note and fight against, but also uh, became the kind of root and soul of a lot of struggles uh, around the world. And uh, obviously uh, fighting against femicide generally is really important, but I think that at uh, this particular uh, murder, and especially at this time, uh, really sparked a lot of anger, especially obviously in Ireland where it happened, where every city, every town, every village uh, in Ireland, both in the south and in the north of the country, um, uh, were uh, holding vigils and having protests. There were thousands of people out in the streets fighting uh, uh, against uh, femicide and against this rotten society that we live in that accepts these things uh, uh, and allows them to happen. Uh, but there were also solidarity vigils uh, around the world, especially we saw one in London, in New York, in Australia. Uh, and I think what's really important and kind of the shout out here today is first of all, for all of the people that went out on the streets to fight uh, uh, and uh, show kind of the support to this uh, important fight against femicide. And especially to our members in Ireland who uh, have been organizing it. And Rosa, our socialist feminist uh, network who uh, has been organizing protests uh, that saw again thousands of people. Um, so I'll encourage everyone here to follow both Rosa and Mick Barry, who is uh, a member of parliament in Ireland, who is a member of uh, the International Socialist Alternative in Ireland, uh, who is uh, one of the people really supporting and organizing the protests. But generally, I think it's really important that we don't see this as one individual incident or as protests for, uh, uh, you know, one particular murder. But it has to be connected to the way that we're going to fight against entrenched sexism in society and against generally the system that is the cause of uh, this inherent uh, sexism and misogyny. So 
what we want to do is build more than just these individual protests and create really a movement to fight against femicide, to fight against uh, uh, sexism and misogyny. And that's what Rosa International is doing. So so definitely check out uh, on social media and around you Rosa International, which is our socialist feminist wing of International Socialist Alternative. Also check out International Socialist Alternative. Uh, really, if obviously if you have a protest near you about this subject, uh, go out, take pictures, send us, let us know uh, how this went. But also check out Rosa if you want to see uh, uh, the next protests and how to fight together in this movement. So uh, that's it for this week and we'll see you next week, same time, same place. This is World to Win. Every Sunday we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight! When they fight! When they fight! Solidarity! 